0: And video.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Get a Clue, the world's first and only podcast dedicated to the legacy of actor Clue Gulliger. Over the course of this series, we are going to be discussing not only Clue's life and his career, but we hope to take a broad yet- also very pinpointed look at what impact these films and these TV shows have made upon our culture. My name is Elby, and I'm here with The Mike. Say hello, The Mike. Hello. Now, do you prefer The Mike or The Mike?
0: You don't have to do a The every time. It could just be Mike. I don't? No, I don't think it's necessarily, it's not like a, you know, King title type thing. It was more just to distinguish me from the myriad of mics on the internet.
1: Oh, so it's not your proper name?
0: No, no, my proper name is not. I've been confused for it sometimes, but no, it is actually just Mike. Yeah, I know. Don't tell anybody.
1: Okay, (laughs) I won't. Well, speaking of pronunciations, I think we should get something out of the way first.
0: Yes, this is an important topic, I think.
1: How do you say guliger?
0: I always thought it was guliger, like goonies, but I think I might be wrong.
1: You might be wrong? I might be. I've heard plenty of people say things like guliger.
0: Yeah, I've heard that.
1: Or (laughs) or Gallagher, too, Mm. when it's obviously not Gallagher. So Clue says it. Like he says it rhymes with mule. So it's guliger, which is Danish. So it makes sense because it's got that weird U. Uh
0: Uh-huh. So do we need to like have a practice run here? Like guliger.
1: Guliger.
0: Guliger. Okay, I can do this. (laughs) Okay.
1: So say it with me. Guliger. Guliger. So why are we doing this podcast, Mike?
0: I think because we have a general admiration for clue guliger if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. That's the that's very broad answer and easy answer. I think maybe a better question would be why him? Why are we picking to talk about Clue?
1: Personally, me personally, I have always thought of him as kind of a gruff son of a bitch, and it has always fascinated me. So I wanted to explore some of his life and his career. I want to know why he has that reputation in my head, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's not such a gruff son of a bitch. So that's what I'm doing here.
0: Okay, so we're basically looking at how gruff and tough and tumble as a different (laughs) song. What makes Clue give you that impression of him? I think... For me, Clue's always been one of those actors that just shows up. Being a horror fan growing up, there were a lot of movies I saw where this guy showed up and I didn't realize until I started connecting the dots, hey, this guy's in a bunch of these movies. And then looking further, I start seeing pop up in other things. I start to learn more that he had a past TV career, those kind of things that we're going to talk about as we go through all this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's neat to look at someone who isn't your mainstream superstar, isn't your everyone's talking about, but someone who, as I looked further down the line at all these movies I enjoyed, seems to be popping up and, you know, being an entertaining, integral, fun, cool part of a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you're a horror guy. You've been a horror guy for quite some time. True. And... I like horror movies. I wouldn't call myself a horror fan, really. I'm not really a fan of anything, but I like horror movies. And what I was really excited about to ask you to do this show with me is you know this stuff. And this is a personal journey for me as well to learn about all the stuff that like is kind of missing from my life, I guess. Mm -hmm. So thank you. And, you know, come to find out Clue has a very fascinating life so I think this is going to be very fun.
0: Yeah I think for me it's kind of an opposite journey of exploration as you where I knew him like I said as horror movie guy Um, Uh you know from the 1980s and even into then some recent films we'll talk about later in this series. Clue was a guy who, in my mind, was a kind of player that showed up in B-movies, and I didn't know a lot about his other stuff, so then when we started talking about Clue and how interesting of a character he is, it kind of melded together of, well, there's one side of it and another, the horror side, and both of us Mm -hmm. kind of want to know more about the other and pay tribute as we can to a really interesting career
1: right because there's two things he's known for and there's a definite i guess like gap like generation gap sort of like older folks know him for his earlier career when he was on the tv westerns and things like that Mm -hmm. and then people of our generation of course know him from all the horror movies in the 80s and and you know beyond that so it's so interesting when you have someone who has a career that has spanned so many decades yes and you can examine different parts of it and come up with all these crazy and awesome facts and things to consider and talk about we're not going to go chronologically we've decided to skip around a bit in his career to sort of keep it interesting
0: i think kind of from the vision you had that you told me and i agree with is this career of Clues spans all this time and all these different eras and really the choices he was making or had to make at those times in his career kind of represent where culture was at that time, where movies and TV were. And it's interesting just to look at, you know, how he moved through that landscape and how his career changed and became something else as needed because of the time of each film or TV show
1: right exactly we're gonna start off this episode with a couple of crowd pleasers i would say yes this is 80s horror part one the anthology movie from a whisper to a scream and the slasher the initiation but first how about some clue facts
0: let's do it
1: when Clue Gulliger moved his family from Southern California to his native Oklahoma in the summer of 1988, his intention was noble. The family had spent several years cramped in their Venice Beach rental. It was Clue and his wife Miriam, their two sons, John and Tom, and John's wife Diane. Miriam had just inherited a sum of money when a relative passed, and rather than buy an overpriced house to stay in California, Clue looked to his childhood home. The cost of living in Oklahoma was lower, of course, but more importantly, Clue thought it would be the perfect place to let his filmmaking dreams come to fruition. The dream was to make feature-length indie films entirely written, directed, produced, acted, and edited by the Gulligers. Now, if you haven't heard of how eccentric the family can be, you might think they might produce normal, or maybe even quirky, family dramas or comedies. But you'd be wrong. Very wrong. For starters, in 1969, Clue wrote and directed an acclaimed short film called A Day with the Boys, which we will fully discuss on a future episode, that is as dark as it is beautiful, and in 1977, Clue and John worked together on a project called Rock Opera, a project they struggled to find backing for, and whose strangeness gave them a reputation for being, let's say, off the beaten path. The film Clue had in mind when they packed up the truck to Oklahoma was an extremely gruesome and violent retelling of the Ed Gein story, but in the early 90s, Clue began working on a script so disturbing that it made Cannibal Holocaust look tame. The eventual full project title, Fucking Tulsa, An Excursion into Cruelty. At the time of its conception, however, the film was called Kill 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 Kill. Tom would take the starring role, a restless serial killer named Jake. The plot? One night Jake breaks into the home of an elderly woman, played by mother Miriam, and falls asleep inside. Cut to the next morning and a now naked Jake orders the woman to strip at gunpoint, then shoots her in both the stomach and the face before urinating on her. That's just one of Jake's misadventures. Entertainment Magazine, LA Weekly, published a feature story about the Goulgers in a 1997 issue, which described the fucking Tulsa script. The screenplay hemorrhages sex, disfigurement, and murder. On one page, the killer's girlfriend Maureen masturbates with a gun. Quote: The barrel reasinuates itself into Maureen's POV. The metal is tinged with crystalline moistness. End quote. In another scene, after Jake's father is poisoned and castrated, his penis is tossed into a garbage disposal. Quote: A sliver of pop. Peewee splashes onto the lens." End quote. And in yet another, a woman pulls out her own eyeball. Quote, out comes the gooey organ, ganglia, optic nerves, etc. dangling a la Grand Gugnol. It also has, for good measure, a child abuse scene and a loving close-up of a murdered girl's vomit streaking down the side of a bathtub. So it's safe to say Clues struggled to get funding for this picture. First of all, the budget was about $3.5 million, a sum that investors in Oklahoma 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 hardly had the capital for. Plus, even though Clue had successfully completed short film projects in the past, he was relatively new as a producer, and his name just didn't carry enough clout to keep investors inside and outside of Oklahoma interested. After a few years, the family kind of stopped looking for backers and decided they could shoot the picture on their own. Their budget dropped considerably, around $100,000 now, and they began making sacrifices in their personal lives to raise the funds. The Gulagers found themselves taking odd jobs, John photographed headshots for local actors, while his wife Diane worked as a waitress and a massage therapist. And even though it created tension in the cash-strapped household, Clue turned down acting roles so that the family unit would not be broken apart. After all, this was their dream project, and they were working on it together. All in all, they managed to scrape up about $35,000 for the film. For the next few years, the project was in limbo, while the family faced challenge after challenge to complete it. Their attention to detail and insistence on shooting on a fancy French Super 8 camera were contributing factors. Further, the townspeople of Tulsa started to grow weary of the family, even accusing them of practicing satanic rituals because Miriam had taken in several stray dogs and cats as pets. The horror makeup and special effects classes Clue, John, and Diane taught in the garage didn't help much either. On Halloween night in 1993, someone hung a dead dog in their yard. Later that year, Tom gave the family a deadline to finish the project because he and his wife couldn't stand being in Tulsa much longer. John edited did a 20-minute promo, and the next few years were spent shopping the film around New York and LA. Just about everyone they showed it to was stricken by it. It was wild, tawdry, and out there. Interest for the project raised significantly, but even the distributors who loved the idea for the film ultimately passed on it for being too extreme. Finally, unfortunately, it seemed the Tulsa project was dead, and the family once again packed up, this time headed back to Los Angeles. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Kluge Gulliger is an uncompromising fellow. He's trying to get this picture made, and it is completely like the odds are stacked against him. Not only is this film fucking Tulsa.
0: Like, you can't put the poster outside.
1: Right? <laughs> right. Um, like it is the most graphic, glorious, like most disturbing thing, you know, natural born killers can't even hold a candle to what this movie could have been, you know, but it totally shows his passion for creating the way he wants to create, which is so important for filmmakers, indie filmmakers, like that spirit, just that independent spirit, you know, when he was asked why he kept trying to get this picture made, and you know, just not backing down from his vision, he says that people with obsessions never learn, like, they... they have this compulsion to make films and they're fucked in the beginning and fucked in the middle and fucked in the end but you can call it madness you can call it being an artist or you could call it ruining your life
0: a bit of a harsh view on it But I I think if you ask anyone who's a creative type, what matters to them does hurt them. It's not easy. It's not, you know, ever going to work out the way you want it to. His vision there is he has something that he loves the idea and he's passionate about it. And Mm -hmm. it's worth taking a shot on for him. You know, it's not easy. It's not going to happen probably at this point. But if you believe in it, you keep coming back to it. And I think that's an admirable, you know, maybe when people are having a down day, they'd say a dumb thing to do, but it's that passion and commitment that really does shine through and is a great example of why this is kind of an actor how you look at him and you just go okay he's he's on to something
1: yeah yeah and uh, as far as producing his own films he always says that you should never turn away from the truth now there was another film that he wanted to make and it was called the secret life of a law enforcement officer and this was also during the time when he was trying to make the tulsa movie he was living in oklahoma still trying to raise funds to, to get all you know all these things he wanted to do to get them going this This movie, The Secret Life of a Law Enforcement Officer, is another retelling of Ed Gein. Now I say another, because of course there's Psycho, there's Texas Chainsaw, there's all these movies that tell this story, and you know, in different ways, but Clue says that his film was going to be like the most graphic, realistic telling of that tale. He says that his film would have curled your hair. So his goal is to just not turn away from all the the graphicness or the violence and, you know, and not make apologies for doing that. And he says that we have to realize that man is an animal, basically, and that sometimes there's not a psychological reason for the crimes that people commit. Sometimes people are just evil. Yeah. But do we really care about like what makes people evil? I don't know if we do. Do we really need backstories for for bad guys?
0: I think a lot of people want that. If you look at the news, whenever, you know, something bad happens, you get the stories of, well, he was a nice guy. He was this. He was that people want to find an answer because they don't understand. I was just thinking there's also so many interpretations of something like that. No one understands Ed Gein unless they were Ed Gein and or uh-huh. you know doing the same thing and thankfully there aren't a lot of people out there doing that. So it is open to different takes just a different mindset could look at it one way and say oh he was misunderstood one would look at it and say he's a total sicko one would say it's an illness you know you can find all these different things
1: yeah i mean there's always the argument of nature over nurture i read recently there was one explanation for why people are just inherently evil is because they are lacking in something called oxytocin mm-hmm. which is an enzyme that's in your brain that is thought to control empathy so people who don't have this don't have empathy which of course empathy is the thing that makes us human beings like how we relate to each other and Mm -hmm. if you don't have it then you're not going to care necessarily if you murder somebody or do something really gruesome
0: Well, and then that plays into the argument, looking at the movies we're about to talk about and the movie Clue would have made here, what does that say about people that enjoy those type of movies and those type of stories? (laughs) You know, your initial observation of Clue as the gruff, interesting character, I think we got a long way to go in this podcast, several episodes, but how interested he is in this story and the fucking Tulsa story is... Maybe, you know, pushes the needle a little bit toward that gruff side.
1: Yeah, maybe. Maybe so.
0: But, like I said, there's a long way to go. Stick with us, people. We're going to (laughs) keep finding out more.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Well, do you want to get into the meat of this show? Sure. Okay, we are going to first start off with...
0: From a whisper to a scream. Welcome to Oldfield. Oldfield has a long history of violence and murder. though the very foundation of this place was human suffering. I'm too old for nightmares. One thing I've learned, my dear, is that one is never too old for nightmares.
1: Here in a small American town, the horrors of the past have come alive in the present. From the grave to the swamp. From the carnival.
0: Oh my God, what's happening to me?
1: To the fields. From a whisper to a scream. Vincent Price, Susan Terrell, Cameron Mitchell, Rosalind Cash, Clue Gulager. The eyes of Oldfield are upon them. How do you stay away from it?
0: How do you know that I did? From a whisper to a scream. That's not the only title. Oh, right. Once it got bought up by a video company, they decided, you know what? We don't like this title. We're going to make it The Offspring.
1: Not a reference to that pop punk band.
0: No, it's but, not. But, I mean,
1: why would it be? That's dumb, LB. Don't no, be it's, dumb.
0: No, it's, you know, just let it go. It happens. Don't, don't have the low self-esteem when you're talking about The Offspring. Ooh, yeah, okay, I, I ruined it. Let's move back to The Offspring slash From a Whisper to a Scream. Um, I know the director hated that the title was changed and always wanted to be From a Whisper to a Scream, and as happened to a lot of these 80s movies, the title changed and eventually changed back. Now you can go yeah. on your Amazons or your streaming services and find From a Whisper to a Scream in all its original glory. So let's yeah. just not talk about The Offspring anymore. How about that?
1: Okay. I mean, that's kind of a dumb name for this movie anyway, because it's only one segment of this anthology that has to do with any kind of offspring, but of course, it's the number one important segment because it includes Kluge Gulager. So the mic, I want to keep calling you the mic, okay? I'm sorry
0: whatever's comfortable for you
1: okay what is this movie
0: from a whisper to a scream like you said is an anthology horror movie made in 1987 young director at the time it was his first feature film outside of film school named jeff burr burr set out to make this movie just because he had a title that he liked and he had the idea to make an anthology movie why did he want to make an anthology movie You ask? You might have asked that if you're sitting. Why did he want to make
1: an anthology movie? Why, thank
0: you. At the time, he didn't have a lot of funds to make this movie. And the idea was, all right, we're going to write an anthology movie. We're going to have four segments of it, four short films, basically. And if we run out of money, hey, we've got at least a couple completed short films that we can try and get rid of. That's pretty smart. That is, you know, for a young filmmaker, that's some good business savvy. Thankfully for Mr. Burr and everyone involved in the movie, they did get all four segments made and did put together a pretty interesting cast of characters, really, for a young director, including Mr. Gulliger. So, From a Whisper to a Scream was made in the South. The idea, actually, Burr had is that it would be something of a series of weird Tennessee Williams-type stories. I don't know if that comes off from the movie we get, but the movie is set in a town called Oldfield, Tennessee, which is famously called A Town Where Evil Dwells by the film's Star, who stars in the wraparound segment that ties everything together, the one, the only, the legend, Vincent Price. Yes. Price stars as a sort of historian of the town who's talking to a reporter played by another cult icon, Susan Tyrell. Yay, Susan
1: Tyrell! Yeah,
0: that's a good one. There's a really great story about them on the set that is not related to this at all, but apparently Susan Tyrell makes really interesting art sculptures. Oh yeah? Uh, And she brought them on set to show them to Vincent Price because she was so proud of them. Um, Right,
1: and he's really into art, so that makes sense.
0: Yes, unfortunately Vincent didn't love the art. Apparently Susan Tyrell's (laughs) form of art is a uh, series of sculptures of different mangled types of vaginas
1: you know i was thinking something like that i was like it must be either vaginas or penises
0: (laughs) yeah so vincent price did think she was crazy apparently but hey you know they sounds like they got (laughs) along and made it through the shoot barely uh vincent price this was one of his last films his last film was edward scissorhands out of in 1990 so right around this time but back to the rest of the movie it is an anthology of different taboo tales what the idea the screenwriters had was, we're going to pick four different taboo issues and make a short about each of those. There's a voodoo segment, there's a killer kids segment, there's a carnival freak segment, which is an interesting kind of taboo, but it plays out in a fun way. Uh, and then there's the segment featuring Clue Gulager, which leads off the film.
1: And the taboo in Clue's segment, the offspring part, is that he is a necrophiliac, and in one description i read of this character it says he is a southern necrophiliac like as if that's a thing like a southern democrat or something you know i just thought that was really funny southern necrophiliac is different than a northern necrophiliac of course
0: yeah, and it's funny that they put it that way, because I was watching some of the making of, learning some of this stuff about Jeff Burr and how this movie was made, and one of the comments he made as the director was that they did a southern town because every southern town has some kind of weird stuff. <laughs> kind of a, a weird weird folklore? Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I really hope every Southern town doesn't have voodoo and necrophilia and kids killing people and whatnot, but Hey, I'm not judging, you know, it's their business.
1: Yeah. It's crazy that all these things are happening in Oldfield. You know, I grew up in Tennessee. I'm from t- Tennessee. We have a lot of folk stories or a lot of, uh, Oh, this place is haunted type stories, but like, I, I can't really think of anything about, you know, civil war children, killing people or, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some voodoo, but I don't know. Well, actually, I don't think voodoo is very you know prevalent in Tennessee. It's more of the uh, like snake handling Christian offshoots. But anyway.
0: And it was interesting because the filmmakers, Burr was not from the area, but I can't remember if it was one of the writers or an editor. There was someone on the production from the town where they filmed this, which was in Georgia.
1: Right. It was Dalton, Georgia.
0: It's funny because I'm watching this documentary about the making of and this guy is hanging out in front of a sign for like a weird side of the road attraction with uh-huh. some sort of strange monkey and <laughs> okay. I'm just like, okay that kind of fits with the mood of this film where they just think you know there's weird people all around and that's something I think other uh-huh. horror movies have preyed on at times uh Rob Zombie for example his early yeah, films have that yeah, going definitely. on yeah but yeah, you know they really built up that Oldfield is this town where all this evil stuff happens, and then put these hmm. segments together, um, which interestingly also are spread throughout different time periods. You know, yeah. it is a period piece for the most part. <laughs> the Clue segment is the most modern for 1987 part of the film, yeah. and features Clue as a mild-mannered. I can't remember if he worked for. He just worked on a dock, I think, and was kind of a manager. I don't know. They never really showed what he did.
1: I got the impression he was, like, the supervisor of, like, a newspaper distributor. Okay, that
0: that seems (laughs) possible. But he's always just kind of, like, when they show him at work, he's walking around these trucks and by other people that seem to be doing the work, and he's Mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, there um, with his nice big glasses, very proper attire, his hair slicked back. It's a very unique look. Yeah. The character Stanley was actually written to be a younger person, clue asked to be in this movie as someone who knew Jeff Burr, he was not the reason Clue knew about this movie. Because the other actress cast in this segment is his wife, Clue Gulliger's real-life wife. Miriam. She ended up playing his sister in this segment, who Clue's character Stanley takes care of. And they wanted to cast her in the film. Clue said, hey, why don't you let me be in the movie? Why don't you let me be the Civil War general in this sketch later in the film? That role ended up going to Cameron Mitchell, another big-name actor actor of the time, to an extent. And Clue, they decided, just, well, this role of Stanley is written to be a 28-year-old guy. It's not really written for someone like Clue, but he has some good ideas. We're going to just go with it. So that's how he came to be the star of, the co-star of From a Whisper to a Scream. Uh, Starring opposite his wife, Uh, he plays her keeper i guess and it's what word i could use for it she is an invalid living in the house with him and he's taking care of her as a right
1: their brother sister
0: yeah an interesting relationship i think when i first started watching the movie i immediately assumed husband wife not even knowing mm-hmm. at the time that she was his real life wife but yeah it's a unique dynamic there's hints of more weird behavior there to an extent. (laughs) That southern thing that they wanted to go with, I guess. Hey. Hey, I'm I'm not saying (laughs)
1: it. What what, what are you saying? I'm I'm using the director's
0: words, not mine. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna get you Mr. Burr.
0: Yeah. He he had a unique perspective. I was shaking my fist. I heard the rage. So as you often see in these situations where there's a caretaker and an invalid. Oh, there's probably a better word than invalid. Someone who needs assisted care. There we go. That's a little better, maybe.
1: There you go. Yeah, she's, um... I don't know if I would call her an invalid. I think she was just very, very socially awkward. And okay. she does not leave the house. And she... I mean, I guess you could say, oh, she's not all there or whatever. But she kind of has a obsession with the past. Like, she's always talking about their dad and, you know, the things that they used to do with her dad you know like on christmas or you know so she has this desire to live in the past basically i mean she's just not very healthy in her head
0: no she's a very frail character presented Mm -hmm. as such one of the images that repeats throughout the segment as of you know clue's character having to bathe her and take Mm -hmm. care of her that way and Yeah, the more you look at it, you're like, you know, she probably could do this herself. She doesn't- Probably. Like you said, she doesn't seem to actually be disabled in any means. She's just not quite right
1: yeah and she definitely wants his affection and his attention when he starts leaving the house more and more at night like going out with his work buddy i i I think they go bowling or something you know he says that they're gonna go bowling she starts feeling like she's not getting that attention from him so she'll put really really excessive makeup on when she's like painted up like a little tart you know in the traditional sense <laughs>
0: she got herself dolled up for him that's one way yeah you could look at
1: it um, yeah so i mean this this relationship is kind of strange
0: it's unhealthy we learn more about clue's character as we go on as we hinted at with the taboo in this but from the start you look at this brother and sister living together and their relationship and it is a really awkward situation awkward to watch you know you can tell it'd be awkward to be around
1: you know one of my favorite parts of this and it's really kind of silly but it made me go what are you doing is clue makes dinner for them every night and it's usually a tv dinner so he puts it in the microwave but he doesn't take it out of the box first
0: i noticed that and i was like (laughs) what come on man (laughs) he's just half-assing it at that point
1: (laughs) right so like how much of a caregiver is he really i don't think very much of one right
0: he's not interested in that role uh he is interested (laughs) in one of his co-workers Mm -hmm. a much younger more picturesque tall blonde woman who he has feelings for who he's trying to get to go out to dinner with him and other things
1: but she is way too cool for him.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a match that just anyone walking by would go, Yeah, that's probably not gonna happen, guy. And especially when everyone else he works <laughs> with seems to be younger. You know, the other actor that's his best friend in the in the segment is a probably at most mid thirties, well built, yeah. shaggy haired, looks like your football player athlete of the eighties, kind of.
1: Right. He's just a blue collar dude, yeah. you know that idealistic looking blue-collar dude.
0: Yeah, and that's the kind of people you would expect this young woman to be around and interested in and whatnot, but Clue just kind of, as Stanley, has his mind made up that he has feelings for and he's going to go for it.
1: Now, that's not to say that Clue Gullier is not a handsome guy, because he's pretty handsome, but this character is not at all. No, they go out of (laughs) (laughs) their
0: way to make this character unappealing. His outfits, his glasses are the giant you know coke bottle glasses he looks just i don't even know the pale pale yes he's he's definitely pale pale. pale. and like
1: almost kind of sweaty in a way Mm -hmm. yeah i don't don't know it's a very greasy performance would would not want to go out with him
0: that kind of leads toward the conflict that plays throughout the rest of this episode watching the documentary about the making of this film, which actually I might recommend more than the film, it was a really interesting look at how these filmmakers and actors came together, and Clue actually had a big hand in a lot of that, not even as like a behind-the-scenes presence, just as they brought him on as an actor and he kind of just had these suggestions for them. He runs an acting class, something we'll talk about in some of our other episodes, and that's mm-hmm. one where he met the director. Jeff Burr was a member of his class. The other actors in the Civil War segment in the film that Clue wanted to star in were from that acting class also. And I like
1: the the other soldiers.
0: The other soldiers with Cameron Mitchell, yeah. Also, Susan Tyrell, who we talked about a little, was suggested for the this movie by Clue, because he had just worked with her in a comedy we're going to talk about at some point.
1: Tapeheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, Susan Tyrell had been in that with him. He went to the director and said, hey, you need an actress? And that's how she got into the movie.
1: You know, that's really cool when actors have that sort of like, I got your back, you know, like, I'm your buddy, I'm going to get you this role. I mean, it kind of borders on nepotism, which is always kind of annoying, like, oh, you got to have a connection to get a job. Like, that's that's annoying for the person who doesn't have the connection. But I do think it's really cool when, especially actors who are kind of off the beaten path, when they have this sort of community with with each other, that's really cool. And it's inspiring in a way
0: yeah it is it's very gives a family type feeling to the proceedings Mm -hmm. and clue definitely seems like someone from the interviews i've watched and the little bit about him i know that there are people he's worked with and then worked with repeatedly director jeff burr on this movie he ended up doing two more movies with uh his wife miriam did another movie or two with burr i know she appeared in texas chainsaw massacre 3 which was his next project after this was released and it does it gives you kind of a family and also a loyalty you know it shows that this is someone who will hey I got a buddy doing something I'll help out you know you think about like people have their friends come help them move and that kind of thing. With actors, a lot of times it's, hey, you're a buddy, just show up in this movie.
1: <laughs> sure, I'll give you a pizza and a yeah. beer.
0: I feel like Clue is kind of that person sometimes, and it seems like there was a relationship made through, you know, the relationship they already had, but then strengthened with this movie and what it did put Clue into a at least partially starring role. The reviews of the film were not great, and it's easy to see why watching it today.
1: Well, there, there's, it's there's not moments. that
0: great of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But Clue did get some positive reviews for it. One of the first reviews that the director saw for the movie, he talked about being, you know, entirely just ripping it apart. Um, But they did show a clip of it and it mentioned Clue Gulliger is miles above the rest of this movie.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. You know, um, there was an interview in Fangoria in January of 1986 where Clue says that just about anything that could have gone wrong on a low-budget movie did in this movie. But the growth as an actor made up for all of that stuff. Like, he says that... It was a radical departure of the public's preconceived picture of the roles that he would play. And yeah, and that's a really important turning point in his career. Mm -hmm. You know, like he used to be thought of as, you know, Billy the Kid in The Tall Man, like this kind of, I I don't want to say wholesome, but that kind of just old Hollywood sort of thing. And now here he is doing this off the wall sort of role and you know if your grandpa who knew him from the virginian or from the tall man saw this movie he would probably be like uh that's not the clue i know (laughs) well and it's
0: not even just your grandpa one of the most fascinating stories about this movie is after it had been filmed a partial print was shown to a lot of people in la um you know studio Mm -hmm. type people people who would get invited to that kind of thing one of those people was legendary horror fan forrest j ackerman
1: oh yeah yeah yeah. and
0: he actually jeff burr had tried to get to be in this movie first of all he ended up oh, really? backing out of it and that's lawrence tierney who came in and did the little bit of a role he has in the wraparound oh, segment
1: okay okay
0: what happened is when the news came out about this movie and that Vincent Price was going to be in it, Forrest J. Ackerman wrote a letter to Vincent Price telling him, I heard you're oh? going to be in this movie. Don't do it.
1: <laughs> it is
0: a repulsive movie because of what Clue Euliger does in this movie.
1: Oh, really? Huh.
0: While it wasn't necessarily the best, you know, the segment that Clue is in here is unique, yeah, raw, it's rare, it made an impact. And even to the point where people that are known for being part of the horror scene were saying, hey, this is out there. You don't want to be associated with this, Vincent Price.
1: <laughs> wow. I know also Vincent Price was a little bit hesitant to do this movie because he had already done The Monster Club, which is in 1980. It's the anthology mm-hmm. also, but uh, he's in it with John Carradine. Uh, they do the wraparound segments. And that movie was really not well received, unfortunately, because it's actually one of my favorite anthologies ever. So, yeah, Vincent didn't really want to do this movie at all, and I'm sure that letter sort of contributed to that. Yeah, and
0: I think, if I remember correctly, unfortunately by that point he had already, well, at least unfortunately for him, he had already started filming and doing the work he did on this, uh, which if I remember Uh. was just a few days. It's just a unique situation where Price didn't have a great time on this movie either. He was not a fan.
1: No. Didn't like how it worked
0: out, and just kind of was done with it.
1: When they decided that they wanted Vincent Price for this movie. Um, no, this information is coming from one of the writers, C. Courtney Joyner. He said that they got his address from this old celebrity address service that you pay like $2 for and they send you something in the mail. It's like a directory of celebrity addresses. So they just went to his house and knocked on the door like with their script in hand <laughs> And he opened the door wearing an apron because he was baking bread. Now you know that's one of the other more famous things that Vincent Price is known for is his cooking. So this is totally believable, and I just I love picturing this scene of just going to Vincent Price's house like out of the blue, and he opens the door and he's just wearing this apron and he's probably got flour all <laughs> over him. Or, you know, he's, you know, holding this, a like, rolling pin. Know,
0: like who are you?
1: <laughs> right, a big like baker's hat, you know, or something. (laughs) and you know he's in his 80s (laughs) he let them in because he's a gracious person (laughs) and um they sat down they told him about the project and he was not interested but apparently he was also very polite and he told them that they could come back when they had more of the stories worked out because at that point they were just you know you know how you You do. You have your script. It might not be complete yet. And, you know, like you said, they had these ideas for this movie and that they wanted to have these segments. They probably weren't completed. But he eventually did sign on. But, yeah, there was some tension when they started... Getting more of the script out and the way they wanted things to go he was kind of like I don't know if I really like these changes and by the way you should have consulted me right but I'm glad he did it though like you know his presence in anything is automatically makes it you know above this certain level of of good
0: and even if he was unhappy with it he didn't phone it in he didn't do a little bit and then leave he did his part right in the wraparound he did fine him and Susan Tyrell all the scenes work Mm mm-hmm It's just unfortunate that, you know, it didn't work out the way he wanted it to and they didn't keep him involved.
1: I am going to spoil the ending. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I am going to because I like this bit of information. Originally, the script, they had Susan Tyrell poison him as the way he dies because she goes to him under the guise as being a reporter but she actually has this vendetta against him so she goes there to kill him and they had him poisoned as sort of a well he's an old man we should kind of you know take it easy on him you know we don't want to get him too excited or whatever but when it came to doing the scene he was like no 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 She should stab me in the throat because it's so much nastier. So that was Vincent Price's idea, and I love that so much. Yeah,
0: that again just shows you the person he was taking the role and going all in, even if he didn't necessarily like everything that was going to happen with it. Right. Um, And that's, I think, how Clue worked, too, in this situation, where he, like you said, admitted a lot of things went wrong as they were filming this. It was a tough thing to film. It was a tough topic. They're in this big house, him and his sister, that they trashed. And one of the things they talked about in the behind the scenes is it was, like, a friend of the producer's house. And that didn't go over very well. But despite all the issues, when you have a young filmmaker doing their thing for the first time, you know, admittedly overconfident and admittedly thinking they know all the answers, things are going to go wrong and you just got to roll with them. and right. a professional like Vincent Price or like Clu Gulliger is going to realize that and just work through it.
1: So a few of the people involved in this production of From a Whisper to a Scream went on to do other horror anthologies, um, including a guy named Darren Scott, who did Tales from the Hood, which is a pretty popular movie. But I always want to say T. Well, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do a Keeper voice. Like I always, I always want to say, like if there's tales from anything, right. I always automatically want to do it like the Crypt Keeper. Like tales from even, the hood. I can't. That's not <laughs> there very great, you go. But. Like. Right, like, even if it's completely not involved with Tales from the Crypt at all. Was there ever a time when the Crypt Keeper dressed up as a hood rat? I'm pretty sure there was, right?
0: You know, I would bet on it. I, coincidentally, am not as educated in Tales from the Crypt as a lot of horror fans, (laughs) uh, so I might not be the best resource. But, you know, they did like to put him in different settings and outfits, and I I wouldn't be surprised, (laughs) definitely.
1: Right, right. So, um, horror anthologies, though... um, there's a lot of them, right? Yeah. It's like the subgenre of horror, right? So let's talk about these anthologies for a bit because I think that there's something that pretty much everybody loves. I love anthologies because they are basically short stories and i when i'm reading literature i prefer a short story like not just because oh i have a terrible attention span or you know something like that or you know maybe i just don't want to devote myself to a long story no that's not it it's just that i think that short stories oftentimes Function better. There's a quote from Raymond Carver, who is, you know, he's an author. Mm -hmm. His most famous short story is called Cathedral. That's where you might have heard of Raymond Carver. But his quote is get in, get out, don't linger. And I love that so much because that's like my philosophy on everything. Mm -hmm. Like just, you know, short and sweet, get it done. And you can do that in such a way that it's really a great exercise in restraint and when someone can manage to paint this perfect picture and have a real genuine scene with rounded characters and it's short it's really really special like it is so earnest to me and and honest and it's great and I think horror works really well in this way I mean you have your Edgar Allan Poe you have your uh, Lovecraft Even Stephen King, I would argue that Stephen King's short stories are better than his, you know, 8,000 page novels. A lot of the
0: time, absolutely. And I was going to make the same point. Horror is made for short stories. Mm -hmm. Easy question, maybe, unless you have a different answer than me. When, (laughs) When we're young, how do we learn horror stories? How do we learn the horror genre at all as a young person? Someone tells us a scary story.
1: Right, right, right.
0: It's not a novel. It's not a full film. It's a hey. Did you ever hear about this? Hey, right,
1: urban legends. It's urban legends. Like it's campfire
0: it's- tales. It's mm-hmm. something that gets under your skin, makes an impact, and then there's nothing more, and you just have to wonder about it. Right. You know, you don't see anthology dramas very often. Anthology comedies, but no. horror is.
1: Well, well you have skits, you sure. Know, like I mean, Amazon there's women from the moon and stuff yeah, like that.
0: They're, but... they're out there, but it's easy to make a horror. And anthology because when you get people sitting around a campfire trying to scare each other, you get more and more stories as it goes, and people keep one-upping and one-upping and trying to be the scariest. And anthologies are a great source for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It plays into... Also, like we were talking about with the actors, you know, like that sense of family because it's a bonding experience. Like when you are scared with somebody or you scare somebody by telling them a story, it's this really cool bond. You just have this shared experience and it can be a lot of fun. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that is exactly why anthologies are effective. And I'm thinking about why we love anthologies so much, especially in the 80s is when there were so many horror anthologies, we always look back on them with fondness because, I mean, there's really not that many anthologies made anymore. I mean, you have ABCs of Horror, you have um, VHS, XX, is that the one? Yeah, the, uh, yes. The all-female. I mean, you have these and they're fine, you know? They're fine, but we just don't really have this, like, golden view of anthologies anymore, but when we think about the ones from when we were kids, it's really interesting to me because when these movies were being made, they're filmmakers were sort of uh, I guess influenced by their nostalgia for reading old comics, like the the EC comics, you know, the Tales from the Crypt, the Vaults of Horror. Those were always little stories of course.
0: Also it was a TV phenomenon in the early era of TV. There's obviously, you know, you don't think about the Twilight Zone as necessarily horror but it had a profound right. impact on a lot of filmmakers in that type. You had the Outer Limits out there. Uh, you also had the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, uh, which we need to mention that a little bit too because someone we, know we do happen to appear on that program <laughs> a couple times.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, Clue Gullier was in uh, two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Now, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, um, one was from 1959 and the other one was from 1960. And, you know, he just had little roles in them. I say that was before his biggest breakouts (laughs) in TV,
0: um, which we're going to get to later. So it wasn't like he was a big name at that point, but he did show up and appear on some of those programs.
1: One episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents that he was in, he just played this little bit part. Like he was a sailor in a bar.
0: <laughs> I can see it.
1: <laughs> and then there's the other episode, which I think has a really cool twist. okay? Because, like, you know, all these shows had twists, right. right? Like that was the thing.
0: Which goes for the anthology films, too, most of it.
1: Yeah. to a twist. Exactly. Now, I'm going to describe this episode because I think it's cool. So, he plays a convict who has escaped from prison. And he goes to this lady's house. And she has discovered that her niece was writing letters to him while he was in prison. And they had fallen in love. And uh, this episode's called Pen Pal. So, he goes to her house, tells her that he's in love with her niece... And she freaks out and calls the cops, and they take him away. But here's the twist. So as soon as they take him away, she goes and sits down, starts writing a letter, and it turns out she's the one that's been writing all these letters to him in her niece's name. That's some
0: catfish action right there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) right? (laughs) That is
0: interesting, and definitely ahead of its time, as you can tell the (laughs) response I had to it.
1: Yeah, so you know, you, you think about something like that only being in our modern social media era. But yeah, I mean, like, I guess, of course, it could have happened when people just wrote letters back and forth or, you know, answering personal ads back mm-hmm. in the day or something. So yeah, I mean, I thought that was really cool.
0: Poor Clue got played. No, I feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah. He was a nice convict, I bet.
1: I bet he was. <laughs> But Clue was never directed by Hitchcock, though. You know, most of those episodes weren't actually directed by him. Yeah, he only did a select few. Right, I think maybe people have a a preconception that he did all of those. You know, just like people think that maybe Rod Serling wrote every Twilight Zone and directed (laughs) every Twilight Zone. No, that's not true, of course. But So he never was directed by Hitchcock, but they were both at Universal at the same time because, well, at this time, Clue was a Universal contract player and he was there for about ten years, so he would cross paths with Hitch on occasion and Clue would always try to go into the room where they would do the dubbing. Like he would always try to go crash the dubbing <laughs> session because he wanted to learn how to do those types of things. Because of course as an actor you you know, you see how movies are made and you you get really interested and in maybe you want to be a director too, you know. I mean that happens all the time. Absolutely. So he said that Hitchcock would throw him out of the room all the time. Like he was very hateful to him. So he learned that he was very protective and very secretive and very argumentative, which we all know is definitely characteristic of
0: Alfred yeah, Hitchcock. Yeah, if anyone who's looked into Hitchcock's working relationship with actors and the people he worked with, that is not a surprise at all.
1: You know, thinking about still why we love these anthologies and looking at the old TV shows and the the old comic books, you know, it's weird because our generation now, you and I are about the same age and I'm 37, okay? I'm in my late 30s. I'm getting there. (laughs) I was not of the generation where I got to watch The Twilight Zone when it was on. No, no, you know. So I don't have this personal nostalgia for this stuff, but it still feels very nostalgic to me. Like it's, is it manufactured nostalgia? Meaning, is this just an attraction to this sentiment for a time and a place that I didn't actually experience? You know, that term manufactured nostalgia is used a lot in design. It's an aesthetic almost. And you can think about people like Wes Anderson who may these films that have a definite aesthetic and it's vaguely 60s vaguely 70s maybe 80s i know you can't really it's just
0: definitely not now it's not real like where we're at
1: right so i'm wondering (laughs) why do we have this thing for these types of movies you know i mean nostalgia is really important it's also very annoying, <laughs> as we know from people like Ernest Klein. But the thing about it is that nostalgia helps increase our self-esteem because it makes us think about things that we love and it makes us more able to deal with problems and stress because we're in this place of goodness like we feel good Mm -hmm. when we feel nostalgic but it's the marketing of it all is what makes us tired of it and hate it so i don't know i really love anthologies
0: yeah i think as a horror fan for me anthologies are always for the most part safe viewings because If you don't like a horror movie, you sit there for 90 minutes, usually, and if it doesn't Mm -hmm. hit, it's just a miss. Comedy and horror are the two genres where if the movie just misses and doesn't affect you, it's over. Mm -hmm. And you've just lost that time. If you don't think a comedy is funny, you're not in it, it's not going to do anything for you. If you don't think a horror movie is effective, it's not going to do anything for you. But anthologies are
1: it.
0: Yeah, there's four horror tales here. It's going to be over in 90 minutes. If I don't like one of them, it's not a big deal. I can think about like some of the most famous anthology movies out there, or like Tales from the Crypt, for example, as a series, where I can think of episodes of that and episodes from anthology movies I like that I just adored. Uh But almost every one of those anthology movies, I can go, well, that one segment was kind of pointless. Didn't really hit for me.
1: Right. Right. There's, there's hardly ever an anthology where you like every single segment. And I I mentioned the monster club earlier. That's one of the ones that I actually like every single part of Mm -hmm. it. Um, Another one would be cat's eye. I love cat's eye. All of that's great. But yeah, like you said, a lot of times, eh, some of it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And this one from a whisper to a scream. I really like clues segment. Yes. I really like the well, okay, even within the segments, there are hit and miss parts, you know, like the the second one about the voodoo the ending is very effective yes but leading to it i'm kind of like eh, okay come on mm-hmm. you know the circus freak one, okay whatever and the last segment okay so i'm going to say this <laughs> i got this dvd years ago because I love Vincent Price. And I hadn't seen it, I hadn't really heard of it, and I was like, oh, this is cool, I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna watch it. And I really enjoyed it the first time I watched it, and that very last segment, the Civil War one with Cameron Mitchell and the children, completely messed me up. (laughs) Yes. I was so disturbed by it because, you know, a lot of times you don't really see children behave like that. I mean, of course, that you have children of the corn or whatever, but this seems like so hardcore to me. This was probably 10, 12 years ago or something. Then immediately when I asked a friend to come over and watch this movie, like, oh, I just got this really (laughs) disturbing movie, you should watch. We watched it again, and I was like, oh, (laughs) like, it just did not have the same impact at all, so I ended up selling this DVD, because I was like, oh, whatever, you know, it's not that that. good. Yeah. (laughs) I get that. But, I mean, that's not to say that there's not merit to this film, because There is. Yeah, there's
0: so many ups and downs throughout the movie, and Mm -hmm. like I said, the behind the scenes stuff really colored it in a different light to me because I could see how they missed you know they were pretty uh-huh. it's a really the blu-ray just came out from uh shout factory in the last year i think if i'm not mistaken and they have a feature-length documentary with burr with the writers with the editors mm-hmm. all these people clue has a few interview clips although he didn't do anything new for this documentary they were really honest when they were talking about the movie of you know we wanted this to happen it just didn't happen but they're really honest about the vincent price stuff and how the relationship with him just didn't work out i don't mind a movie messing up and then hearing the directors say you know what We were trying something and we did this and we, (laughs) it just didn't work out. That kind of, that really increased my impression of the movie, just seeing some of that behind the scene. And yeah, they were young and a little full of themselves, but. (laughs) <laughs> the, the idea was good. They didn't hit everything they wanted to, and they were probably too ambitious for their talent at the time. This Civil uh-huh. War segment you're talking about, they're filming in a swamp in rural Georgia um, right. with Cameron Mitchell, a veteran, but also at this point late-in-the-game actor, and children. That's rough. They even make a reference in there that they were worried because of uh, another anthology movie, the Twilight Zone movie. Um, uh, yeah. John Landis, okay. directing one of those segments, had a serious accident where people died kind of worried as they went on because they were putting these kids in tough spots they were putting these actors in tough spots and they were really being extra cautious to avoid any Mm -hmm. kind of incidents
1: that's probably the best that could come out of that Landis situation was, you know, making sure that uh, filmmakers took those precautions. Yes, I mean, it's... That's good.
0: It's good that they learned from it. It's good that they were concerned about that. And again, not just like that, you know, we see and think of the typical director that's just like, I need this to happen. I don't care what happens. You know, it wasn't that type of setting.
1: It wasn't Alfred Hitchcock.
0: Yes, I was thinking Kubrick, but that (laughs) works too.
1: Okay, yeah, well, they're kind of... uh, I mean yeah they're very similar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah anthology movies definitely are low risk to me that's part of why i have affinity for this type of movie is that there's a chance for something interesting it might not always work but you know we were talking about the twilight zone and how that's a distant thing for me that always helped me with the twilight zone because it was like can you believe they thought all this back then can you believe they had that (laughs) twist that show blew my mind when i started getting into it when i was younger and i still (laughs) every once in a while the marathons come on it's like oh i gotta watch this episode i know the twist i've seen it 10 times but i gotta watch that just Mm because of how they pulled it off and that's something yeah. you find in anthology movies. Even older, you know, Amicus films in Britain in the 70s had a bunch of them. Uh, the original right. Tales from the Crypt movie they did and you know mm-hmm. vault of horror mm-hmm. from beyond the grave mm-hmm. the stories especially when they made a handful of them maybe even close to 10 or 12 of them over a 10 year period you start running low on material um and you could tell <laughs> in those movies that they were kind of as they got near the end of their run just kind of okay this one will be more funny because we're running out of the stories we know and have access to yeah and it worked sometimes and didn't work but you know they were taking shots at it and that's what i really enjoy about that kind of film
1: so in the next film we're going to discuss is from 1984. It is a sorority slasher called The Initiation. Before the initiation begins, the subjects are studied. Even their dreams are recorded. Before the initiation begins, the testing areas are selected. The sorority house, the sanitarium, the empty shopping mall. Delta, Delta, Ro, Kai. And just before the initiation begins, a toast is required. And to being young, staying
0: young, and dying young. <laughs>
1: the initiation. Delta,
0: Delta Rokai be with
1: you. A fraternal tradition for over 100 years. The Delta, Rokai. Created for only one purpose. Pleasant dreams.
0: <laughs> the initiation. The ceremony that will never die as long as new blood is pledged. I'm a big fan of this movie, I'm going to say that up front. I I may color code it to be Citizen Kane, it is not Citizen Kane.
1: Yeah, what is it? What is this movie?
0: The initiation is, as we've said, a slasher set around a sorority, although not a lot of the movie takes place in that sorority setting. Uh, It's about a young woman trying to earn access into a sorority, played by uh, Daphne Zuniga. She's billed as being introducing Daphne Zuniga, although she had already actually been in another slasher movie before this was made the dorm that dripped blood great title not a great movie
1: (laughs) i think a lot of slashers are like that. oh yeah there's some titles titles. that you're like
0: yeah that's gonna be great and then you see the movie it's like oh come on um but the initiation is about the initiation into the sorority and what these girls led by uh, mrs unigai are asked to do she stars in the film and is the daughter of a rich couple who have played into some issues we'll talk about as we go on and that couple is a legendary actress Vera Miles who is famous from Alfred Hitchcock films and from a strained relationship with Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. She was initially his choice to star in Vertigo over Kim Novak. And backed out of that I believe she was pregnant I wrote a paper on this I should remember this But I can't remember exactly Anyway, they had a feud For a few years after that Anyway, she is the mother Of the Daphne Zuniga character And the father is none other than Clue Gulliger Clue and Vera Miles Were both brought into this movie As kind of special attractions Is a way to look at it (laughs) Um, They're the top-billed stars in the film Although they're not in a lot of the film As we mentioned, it's a slasher About a sorority And I don't know if any of you have been around sororities, but the parents don't usually hang out there. Uh, So that is one sign you're not going to see a lot of Clue and Vera in this film. But they do play into the plot because, as we learn in the opening, there are some strange dreams haunting our main character. And they are of her parents, and a man on fire, and some strange traumatic events. She doesn't know why she's having these dreams, she doesn't know what they mean, but there they are. And in dealing with that, we do get to meet the parents a little bit, and we do get to see... a little bit of old school I like to think of it as a oil family kind of situation, although (laughs) uh, we learn as we go on that Clue is the owner of a giant shopping mall um, and proprietor of that, and Vera Miles is very much the mm, strong brassy mother, strong opinions, very hard on her daughter. On the flip side, we have Clue as kind of the, oh, she can do what she want, you know, just kind of given the, the daddy's girl situation. And as we learn as the movie goes on, they're tied in a little bit to the strange killer who may be on the loose and uh it plays into their relationships with their daughter and as we find her and her soon-to-be sorority sisters in her father's mall late one night after hours of course getting picked off one by one because that's what happens in this type of film so that's The Initiation in a nutshell. This is another interesting production, but in a very different way than From a Whisper to a Scream. So From a Whisper to a Scream we talked about, you know, the situation where the director had control of his movie, maybe didn't have everything the way he wanted, but just did it. Uh, that was not the case. The Initiation was some producers came together with this idea for a slasher film, they hired one director, and the director had ideas to make this a very arty... Arty? dramatic film. Huh. Yes, he was looking for a kind of a art house slasher, is the description that they Can you gave. give
1: me an example of an art house slasher?
0: You know, it's a hard sell to go with an art house slasher. Um, I think the easiest thing is to say something more like Halloween, that is, you know, more of a different filming style, a unique filming style. Going back further, Black Christmas. Um, house on Sorority Row is a really uh, moody, more, you know, strange colors uh-huh. and hazy outlooks. There are a couple scenes in this film, very brief, there's the introduction, um, but there's also some scenes like with the mental hospital they are a little faded compared to some of the other scenes in the film, and a lot of speculation is that the director who was hired did those scenes. He worked on the movie for three days, and the problem the producers had with him is they wanted their movie done in 14 days.
1: What? 14 days?
0: 14 days was how long they were going to take to make this movie.
1: (laughs) That's not possible.
0: (laughs) That's a quick turnaround, Yes. And they said, these three days of work are great, but you're two days over. This all should have been done day long. And it's going to take us too long, and you're fired. (laughs) So the producers, who were from the realm of TV, had worked on one of my favorite 80s TV shows, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. Oh, right on. Went out and got a director who had worked with them, a guy named Larry Stewart from the land of TV, who came in and said, all right, we got 14 days, let's do it, let's get this done. Um, and you can definitely tell parts of the film feel very paint by numbers very uh in and out you know we went in and filmed this we got out we went in and filmed this we got out it's not a lot of you know camera movement it's not a lot of different angles Mm -hmm. it's get in set up shoot
1: very economic directing
0: yes um and from that point the movie did get done on time i don't know if it was 14 days with the other director or 14 days with the new director either way the producers were happy with what they got to an extent actually this was a first time watch for you right
1: yeah it is um i definitely have not seen this movie I, you know i'm not the biggest slasher fan and like i know that you're a slasher guy when it comes to horror movies i'm more of a ghost girl but you know that's not the same that- <laughs> yeah
0: We take all kinds in the horror
1: scene.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We accept you, one of us, one of us. Okay, sorry.
1: Calm down. A little out of control. Calm down, the mic. Yep.
0: Sorry, got (laughs) you. Got me in slasher and horror mode. You got to reel me in.
1: (laughs) The thing about slashers to me is, I feel like they're very indulgent. I'm not trying to insult anybody okay when I say this but I think they appeal to people who have a more is better type of attitude which is why all these franchises catch on and why I think slashers were so like in their prime in the 80s because of you know the excessiveness of the 80s. I'm a less is more kind of person so slashers are okay they're, i'm not going to say they're not my cup of tea but they're not my favorite cup of tea <laughs> you know
0: yeah it's a different feeling you mentioned yes i am a fan of slashers but i do look at slashers a lot of times different than other movies mm. for if i was going to say you know what's the best slasher movie ever made to me it's not a competition don't disagree with me because i don't argue with you right now <laughs> it's halloween okay I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Halloween is the best slasher film. I've even argued in the past that Halloween is not a slasher film. Because it is more minimal. It is not that excessive. The slasher movie that we all kind of know and talk about, and this is something other people that, you know, written about the slasher movie and people that watch a lot have noticed. You know how a lot of people think film noir was a certain... A lot of people use it like it's a subgenre, but then there's the mindset that, no, film noir was actually a time and place. Okay. Like, film noir movies were from the 40s to 50s and everything else is just kind of pretending to be it
1: so like it's not so much a genre as it is like a cultural event like a movement yeah Yeah. okay
0: so i kind of feel that way about slasher movies Mm. there are slasher prototypes out there but when you really look at what the slasher movie is to me it's from halloween through the mid-80s that was kind of when the slasher boom happened and you look at the films that were made and almost all of them hit the same notes Mm -hmm. They hit the same ideas, some of the same styles. The plots are pretty dang similar. I mentioned this starts with a traumatic event in the past that she's got these dreams about, but that's 9 out of 10 slashers made in the wake of Halloween, which started with Michael Myers killing his sister 15 years before the rest of the movie. Almost every single one of these slasher movies starts with, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, this is what happened. And that's the setup. It is a little bit of that campfire tale, kind of like an anthology, although then it just builds on the one
1: tail. Right. Yeah. It's um, a lot of times. What is that? The the sins of the father thing where a lot of children paying the consequences for what their parents have done 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's Nightmare on Elm Street, which we'll be talking about Freddy's revenge later on
0: in a few Yeah. Yep, and we'll be talking about it a little bit later as we talk about this because I have some stuff I want to say about what that means in the slasher genre or subgenre. But going back to what you said about the excessiveness, Halloween happened and to me Halloween's always been, you know, it's a story about evil and evil coming back to this town. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every slasher that was born out of that as it's kind of the father of the slasher movement, although there's definitely others around it, you know, Black Christmas and some people will even talk about Psycho, it became a game of one-upsmanship it really did where Friday the 13th happened Then they said, oh, we got to do another one. We got to do another one. And each one had more kills and more breasts and more excess. That early segment of the 80s, too, there were slasher movies coming out all the time doing the same things in different ways. You know, we talk about the 80s as a time when there were lots of sequels. But this early stretch outside of those first Friday the 13th movies, there weren't a lot of the most famous slashers of the early 80s. Films like My Bloody Valentine, Mm -hmm. Happy Birthday to Mm -hmm. Me, The Prowler, House on Sorority Row. I'm just going to keep naming them. I should stop. (laughs) Didn't have sequels. Right. They were just, someone had an idea, they went out and made a slasher. You could interchange a lot of them, although they had different parts and different moods and styles, but they were just their own thing and they were done. Um, And that's kind of where the initiation comes into play. It's right at the tail end of kind of that spree of slasher Mm -hmm. moves that happened. And it was filmed in 1983, but not even released for a year, because at that point, people were already kind of done with the slasher movie as it had become in the early 80s. The box office was down. The reviews were never great in the first place. Producers were kind of getting away from Mm -hmm. that. Which is why Initiation is so curious to me because it's a very different slasher than a lot of those early slashers. The biggest thing is those dreams and the repressed memory angle gets played up a lot. Uh, There's a character who is one of the psych professors in her college that becomes a integral part of helping her look at these dreams they go to a basement laboratory and hook her up to a bunch of machines right. and you know test the levels and you get that great squiggly line on a piece of paper that we see in this kind of situation
1: and we always pretend like we know what it means
0: yeah, I'm like, oh, that's not good. It's, it's moving faster.
1: <laughs> oh, no. That must oh, no. be
0: that the dreams are out of control. <laughs> which is an image we saw famously in another film of 1984 when this movie was released, A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and a lot of people think the reason The Initiation finally got released is because it had that little bit of similarity to the dream imagery and dream killer, obviously, of Freddy Krueger. So that came out in 1984. And then shortly after, The Initiation, which had been sitting on a shelf somewhere, mm-hmm was out in theaters. So the initiation, to me, is always interesting as a slasher of that era that didn't do the same thing.
1: Right. You know, even the franchises, when they started out, they seemed like their passion projects from whoever is making them, you know, uh, I'm sure that the idea behind Elm Street, you know, Wes Craven, this was a passion project for him, you know, that kind of thing. But then as it becomes popular and people start demanding more and more of the same story and it becomes the franchise, it gets really bloated and kind of frivolous. And that's, really the the correlation that i was going for as far as the 80s because what says 80s horror to you like to me it's like a metaphor for reaganism and this total era of we keep saying excess but there's like there's no other word for it it is all excess you know with the blood and the kills and the nudity and the partying and the drug use all of that is completely you know, the story of Gordon Gecko, or, you know, even you want to go modern as as like a retro look, a modern retro look, you would say, of course, American Psycho. But it's that (laughs) dog eat dog, every man for himself. What do you do in a slasher? You try to survive and you try to survive by any means possible. And that usually means screwing over somebody or, you know, just not caring what happens to your other people. And that to me is (laughs) so symbolic of Reaganism and that freaking personal responsibility idea that drives me insane uh, about this. I'm like, I don't want to get really political, okay? I mean, obviously, you can probably tell what my politics are by my rant here. But part of the reason that slashers are fascinating to me is this whole thing that centers around Ronald Reagan. And, you know, we can talk about that more later on another episode because guess what? Clue Gulliger did a movie with Ronald Reagan. So yay, more to talk about. There we go. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's a stretch to say, but it's how I feel about it. No,
0: I I think your heart's in the right place there. I think the 80s was a time, especially in horror, when it was one up, one up, one up. We got to keep getting bigger, better. People are eating these up and we can't do the same thing. We got to add more. Mm-hmm. The initiation, I think, as a film actually didn't do a lot of that. Um, and that's part of why it wasn't a giant success and was kind of shell for a while is it's not that excessive it does have some gore does have some nudity but it plays up these psychological aspects it takes its time getting to the mall right
1: there's some substance there it's not just you know um some girls getting hacked and slashed and by the way they're topless
0: no it's not that It does feel kind of out of place in that slasher scene, and I've read some writers talk about how this was basically the last entry in this kind of golden era of the Mm. slasher because of Nightmare on Elm Street changed the Mm. game. People, once Nightmare on Elm Street came out, didn't want these excessive slashers they had seen in the early 80s. Now they were on. We've got this really cool killer. It's a different look. Uh It's a different way of doing it. He quips wise. That was not too played up in the first Nightmare, but it was definitely you could see the possibilities well, yeah, there. Yeah,
1: eventually um, you have Freddy Krueger, you know, jumping around playing a guitar. Yeah, <laughs> whatever I that mean, gif is. You everything
0: you that. want there, and Jason Voorhees at <laughs> the same time. That franchise was supposed to be dead in 1984. Mm. They made a movie called The Final Chapter. Right. But then Nightmare on Elm Street got big, and They realized there was more money in horror, and they kept pumping them out.
1: And my god, Halloween. Um, I mean, you talk about Halloween being this avant-garde thing, and it it was. I mean, this, you know, okay, so I took one film studies class. (laughs) (laughs) So I know, okay? I know that Halloween was a very important movie.
0: And if you watch it on its own with no knowledge of the slasher genre, it's an entirely different type of film. Right,
1: exactly. But then look what happened to it.
0: It got watered down.
1: Right.
0: But yeah, 80s horror was definitely about one-upsmanship, about getting ahead of the other guy, getting ahead of the other movies. I mean, every director seemed to be trying to be the biggest shock in the room.
1: So let's talk a little bit about this film and its role as far as being a sorority slasher.
0: Yes, that's an interesting side of it. I asked you when we started talking about this, hey, you don't happen to know anything about this, because I definitely don't. (laughs) And you told me you got some insight, so I'll let you start us off.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So I was in a sorority in college. I was involved in Greek life. If you know me, that's probably very surprising to hear because it's not really in my character. So I'll tell you the story of why I was in a sorority. When I went to college, my freshman dorm mate, she was a cheerleader. She (laughs) she was, uh, you know, she just ran with-
0: Hold on. Let me get the picture in my head. Okay. (laughs) So, go ahead. (laughs) what are you doing
1: so um she
0: (laughs) sorry let's let's go on with that my bad it's
1: okay it's (laughs) okay it's okay she ran with a completely different crowd than what you know i did (laughs) i was definitely not Mm
0: -hmm. you were not a cheerleader i was not a
1: cheerleader I was a late '90s alternative girl, and the thing was, she didn't know anybody, and she wanted to rush, and she basically begged me to rush with her <laughs> because, you know, she didn't want to do it by herself. And I was like, well, I could do this. Like, like I had this idea in my head where I could be an investigative reporter or something. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I,
0: you know, that's immediately where my mind went. I'm <laughs> like, I bet you wanted to stick it to him. Um, <laughs> Learn their ins and I
1: did, outs. I did. And I was like, you know, I'm going to do it. So I went to Rush the whole week. I went to all the parties. I met all these girls and they are very stereotypical. I mean, some of them were cool. I did genuinely like some of the girls I met and I ended up pledging. Why? But okay. I also had this kind of idea that I was going to make my grandparents proud because they're kind of, uh, I don't want to say wealthy, but they're like a little bit of the upper crust.
0: Okay. You were getting some credentials. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So a little bit of that in the back of my head, but mostly the, I'm going to find out all this dirt basically. So, you know, the representation of Greek life that is in the movies is not really exactly what it's like. (laughs) First of all, there are a lot less murders.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. You know, I've heard of a couple, but I don't think it's on the spree level.
1: Right. Also, there's a lot less getting undressed in front of each other. No, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. At my school, we didn't have sorority houses. Like, they, they had the frat houses, but the sororities didn't have the houses. They just had the, a one building and each one had their own little meeting room. So, you know, that's maybe... <laughs> it is rude, right? I mean, the school had spent all this money building this frat row and all these, like, really
0: nice... Yeah. I mean, of course... Th- Brock gets a and you do Yeah, don't? I know, on.
1: it's not cool, but uh, anyway, um, so maybe my experience is not completely uh, the experience of what it could have been. It's just a really strange part of my life, and uh, <laughs> like it's kind of a weird trivia, I guess, if you think about who I am as a character.
0: It, it happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I learned to sing the Greek alphabet. Maybe I should sing it.
0: You're going to sing for us? I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> what do you think listeners oh wait they can't they
1: talk. can't talk they're probably screaming at i'm us. sure
0: they're saying yes right now i can hear them i i can't but in my mind it's they're out there and they're just loving it
1: i just thought i might want to embarrass myself on this first episode just to get it out of the way so maybe in future episodes i won't be so uptight so okay here we go okay
0: do you need like a drum roll or anything <laughs> okay go
1: Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Psi, Omicron, Pi, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi, Chi, Psi, Omega. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Psi, Omicron, Pi, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi, Chi, Psi, Omega. A little blood okay, I did it. You just have to repeat it. You have to repeat it. I (laughs) messed it up. I'm sorry. I didn't win the sorority prize. That's basically what we did during pledge week. You know, like that was the hazing. (laughs) Like you have to learn the Greek alphabet and you have to be able to say it backwards or some shit like that. It it was not breaking into your father's department store.
0: Did you ever have to stay in a haunted house?
1: No, I did not have to stay in a haunted house. I, like, we didn't have to do any of these things that <laughs> frats and sororities, like, make their pledges do. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know where this really comes from. But, uh, like, if there's a movie about college, and especially a horror movie, in the 80s, it has a frat in it. <laughs> you know? And the leaders of the frat are always gigantic. Douches, you know, they're always mean, especially if it's a sorority, too. Like, we have the character, like we do in the initiation, where she is just catty as all Mm -hmm. heck. And that's not a real experience, I don't think. But also, I wasn't in a sorority in the 80s, and I know that like the the rules for hazing have changed over the years. Where officially, anyone in the Greek system cannot haze anyone else. I mean, like okay. I'm sure they still do. Yeah, I mean they find a way. Yes, they do. You hear these stories all the time, these awful stories, and it's more so frats than sororities. But I mean, they think it's this. Tradition and that they still need to do it, but anyway, I didn't experience that. It always makes me laugh when I see movies like this because I'm like, "What?"
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting too because the Greek system is a big target for slasher movies yeah one of common conceptions of slasher movies and this has been proven and disproven by depending who you talk to is that a lot of the movies are about punishing young women or young people in Mm -hmm, general mm -hmm. and it's interesting that slashers keep coming back to sororities in different ways the initiation is obviously about a young woman who wants to join a sorority and the other Mm -hmm. women with her and our lead character is very she's a timid young woman she's not The party girl. It's hard to see why she's actually trying to join this sorority.
1: Right. That's the thing, is there's always the really, really hateful sorority leader, and you think, why do our protagonists always want to join these organizations? Right. It's never desirable to be in the frat or in the sorority, but they always want to.
0: There's always these same characters like there's the bossy woman who's in charge. There's the girl who she needs to be there, it's her legacy or whatever. Yeah. Then there's your protagonist who doesn't seem like she should be there in the first place. And then there's the character who's even further down the line. Who's like the mousy friend. Uh, And this Uh movie has a great one of those. It's this young girl that doesn't seem like she fits at all. And one of the movie's weirdest scenes is where they're having a dinner and she retells this traumatic experience from her life. Uh It's completely out of place. Not what you would expect from that character and from someone in this type of setting. But it is interesting in the context of the movie because this movie does look into, you know, our past and what leads us to, not to sound like philosophical, but the fate the slasher movies seem to be you know your choices lead you to where you end up these women choosing to go into a sorority puts them on the path to this killer if you watch other sorority based slashers you know there's things like Hell Night Um, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a slasher movie entirely but it's a movie about young women who want to join a sorority and young men who want to join a frat and as I mentioned joking with you they're asked to be in this house where allegedly someone was murdered and it's like a rite of passage but then you also have the movies where characters who are already in a sorority black Christmas is the most famous of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And House on Sorority Row is another one where they're being tracked down and seems punished for being part of it. So it is interesting, you know, horror movies have always, or slasher movies, excuse me, have always been about that kind of, you're going to have to pay, you know, the campers at Friday the 13th, high schoolers, and happy birthday to me. But it does seem like they've decided somewhere along the line that the Greek culture is a really easy target. Yeah. And for those that have been there, like yourself, it's an interesting choice, you know, that that obviously we all have heard those stories and have those Kind of notions when you hear about the Greek culture, but it's unique that these movies of this era really latched onto that and wanted to mm-hmm. use that as an easy setup for whatever's going to happen. Do
1: you think it's because everybody hated yuppies?
0: Could be a little bit. Um, <laughs> the loud and brassy people probably weren't the people that were making these movies friends when they were going through their college setting, or I imagine there are some writers and directors out there who are like, you know, this is a nice bit of revenge on so and so from my past, right? Have characters right. built on that, yeah, maybe they didn't get along with those people
1: so they act out their own fantasies of them being killed or being turned into zombies or something never know Could oh, i was thinking about night of the creeps for a second but... oh yeah there you
0: go <laughs> i can't even think about that one. i was stuck in slasher mode but that's another great example of it <laughs> yeah your dates are here they're dead. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: what about Clue in this movie though? Like what can we say about Clue and his role in the initiation?
0: I think what they do with Clue and Vera Miles in this movie is a really fun addition to the film. It might not necessarily need to be there and initiation one of its faults is it is a little longer than most slasher movies. It's still only probably 95 to 100 minutes somewhere in that range. A lot of these movies directors were pumping in and out in 80 minutes or 85 minutes. Right. And they tried to add depth by adding in these characters and this relationship with the parents. And I think it works. I think Clue does a good job in a very limited role of just being partially concerned father, but also there's hints that there's more going on uh, that he's involved with, that he knows something is up. And Vera Miles alongside him, she really, I think makes a lot of the movie because she does have that relationship with the daughter that's played up and plays in into the movie as it goes on with her repressed memories and the professor and his aide who are actually my probably favorite parts of this movie um, <laughs> yeah that this whole well, what is going on with her and, <laughs> and how does that play into by the way everyone's getting murdered so clue i don't think has the biggest role in this movie you know he's up on the poster with vera miles because they were brought in he adds a strong presence to the movie and kind of lets us know, okay, there's something going on here and it's just a little bit bigger than the normal slasher movie we're used to seeing in this era. It's got a little more depth going on because there is this family relationship and these actors that are more defined than the rest of the young cast members of this film coming in and kind of adding a little bit of meat to the script.
1: Right, it's, it makes it a bit more genuine. There's a believability about it. I really believe this family's relationship Like, like I think it's real, and that's very important, especially to a movie of this kind, to keep you interested, because, you know, I'm gonna be honest, if it's just people smoking dope and trying to get laid and then they get killed over and over and over, like, I'm gonna be, you know, looking at my phone while it's on, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, even though it is longer, and I definitely feel felt the length of it <laughs> watching it.
0: <laughs> There's a little that could be cut, definitely. It's
1: a little long in the tooth. I enjoyed it for what it was, and like you said, like w- w- one of the biggest and best parts of it is Clue and Vera Miles. They have really good chemistry together, and especially with Daphne uh, Zuniga. Uh, maybe it kind of rings true to me a bit more because I am also a daddy's girl. I have that kind of relationship with my dad where, like, you know, no matter what kind of distance we might have, we we still are very close at the same time you
0: know yeah he's got your back kind of thing
1: yeah 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 Mm -hmm. of course that kind of shoots me in the foot sometimes because in his eyes i can do no wrong but of course Mm -hmm. i'm a human being so i can do some wrong but yeah (laughs) anyway there's there's
0: a really great moment where they're having a discussion and i can't remember the topic but vera miles character is extremely you know critical of the daughter and saying what are you Mm -hmm. doing what do you mean and clue just kind of gives a you know now now don't worry kind of moment and it's such a perfect dad moment where you know the mom (laughs) is just upset and that and he's just like it's okay you're my little girl don't worry about it without saying that without (laughs) using those words and it is an interesting part of the movie too because i mentioned you know how most slashers have that here's what happened in the past that sets up Mm -hmm. the future event most of the movies tell us right away jason voorhees died and now people die this one, kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street as well, we don't know. We see the flashbacks at the beginning of the movie, the dreams, mm. but it's not spelled out. We don't know what's happening until the twist at the end, which we're not going to spoil for you guys. If you no, want to see no, the initiation, no, no. you should definitely do it. And the twist is definitely worth it. it. takes a little while to get there, but it's a really fun way to end the movie.
1: Right, and you know, that does make this film unique because like you said, if, if you know who the killer is... Yeah, Jason Voorhees, you know. Well, okay, so okay, technically it's his mom. The <laughs> right, episode movie. one. But <laughs> we all know, okay. But you still, you know, who the killer is the entire time, and you know what mm-hmm. he's going to be doing. It takes the mystery out of it, so it just yeah, it just becomes really the game of when's he gonna
0: pop up, which right in a lot of the Friday the Thirteenth films is a lot of fun. But for a lot of other slashers, it kind of undercuts the film because you're right. like, okay, well we know everything. We're just waiting for the kill uh-huh. and i hate to say there's an emotional connection with jason Voorhees, but you know people know jason people want to see jason show up if you have right. your own little one-off slasher movie and everyone's like yeah we know the killer now and now we're just waiting to kill someone you can lose the audience
1: mm-hmm. there's this really awful movie called the suckling i
0: have not seen it but i know about it
1: <laughs> don't watch it But the the thing that makes it so terrible to me anyway is not exactly the subject matter, which I won't get into, but the prologue to the movie tells you exactly what happens in the movie. (laughs) Like, there's a girl and she's in an asylum now because she's gone crazy. And it tells you the reason she's in the asylum. And not only (laughs) did all these... uh, this crazy thing happened to her and all her friends die but it tells you that she is the only survivor and then it goes into the movie of like how all that stuff played out and you're like okay why Why am I watching So that's
0: this? the flashback at the beginning of the yeah, movie? Yeah yeah it's, it's okay. awful so you're just like you're watching this
1: whole thing knowing exactly what happens you're just waiting for it to happen and all these people are very insufferable and you want them to die a lot more quickly than they are <laughs> so yeah the movie's like the Initiation, even though it does have that trope of the twist at the end, and it's a very soap opera type twist, even though that's there, it really doesn't take away from the story at all. And there's a really nice mystery that keeps unfolding so even though i'm like maybe this movie is a little too long maybe i didn't quite enjoy it as much as i thought i would maybe it's you know not so good about the whatever i still really like it for that reason on principle i like this movie
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, where I say I'm a big fan of it. I know it's not great filmmaking, and if you look at the comparison between the two movies we've talked about, From a Whisper to a Scream and this, the people behind From a Whisper to a Scream were more out there trying to do their own thing, trying to make something different and special, and they, to an extent, failed. They had some successes, they had some misses. It kind of ended up a mixed bag for me. The Initiation is really cookie cutter, and as I mentioned, that TV director coming in and really making it a paint by name numbers kind of movie. Interesting fact about that I forgot to mention. Both Vera Miles and Clue Wieliger were hired by the first director and Vera Miles specifically did the movie just because she liked this director. Oh really? Now they both did two days work on this movie and by the time they showed up that director was already fired. Oh no. So that became a little awkward on set. I had an interview with the writer I was looking at talked a lot about Vera Miles being very upset didn't mm-hmm. specify that Clue had the same issue with it but that he was just in the same boat as her where he was hired by the one director and never ended up working with that director and you have to wonder then you know it's just speculation if Clue was upset by that if that affected you know his experience on the movie or you know it's always interesting to see if actors claim the horror movies they were in I mentioned Daphne Zuniga had been in another horror movie before this that she apparently doesn't claim and that's why this one says introducing Daphne Zaniga in the credits. Which is weird considering she was in, you know, her second movie and already had the ability to say, just don't mention that. But it's not an ambitious and it's not even an entirely successful film they neither of these movies are going to go on a list of horror classics by any means but it still manages to be fun and unique in its own way you were saying kind of on principle i enjoy this movie for what it does for not being the same slasher we've already seen uh and for trying a few different things even if it's not you know the highest kind of art version of slasher it's something (laughs) different and by 1984 when all these other slashers had come out if they did the same movie as everything else they have just been lost in time
1: well I'm glad this movie is not lost in time and I'm glad that Clue is in it
0: absolutely I think it definitely is a great moment in his career also it's worth noting because you know I mentioned earlier I know him as 80s horror guy this was his first horror movie of the 80s when he started getting into that scene shortly before Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Return of the Living Dead it's kind of a gateway movie I guess you could say
1: <laughs> a gateway <laughs> a gateway to hell
0: Right. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the mic or just Mike?
0: <laughs> Either or.
1: I think maybe uh, we've done all we can do for our first episode here on From a Whisper to the Screen. To the scream.
0: <laughs> <laughs> From a whisper to a scream. It's not the song. No. I, I struggle with that, and I wanted to break into it, but thankfully I'm not going to. Maybe oh, next on, episode sing. I'll sing. Yeah, maybe next episode I'll sing. You know, we'll we'll work up to that.
1: Okay. From a whisper to a scream and the initiation. Yeah, there. That's what we talked about. So I want to thank you, first of all, for agreeing to go on this journey with me, and then I also want to thank our listeners for being awesome.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and you guys out there, keep coming back. We'll have something for you, I promise. We're going to have fun with this.
1: Yes, we are going to be talking about a wide range of Clue's career. We hope to hit a lot of the highlights. No, we're not going to be completionist.
0: You know, we're going to talk about the high points and a lot of things that he did that maybe you all don't know about or haven't thought about in a while
1: yes and if you would like to contact us you can do so in a few ways firstly you can email us at get a clue podcast at now I hope that you guys know how to spell clue. It's C-L-U. No E. Right. No okay? e. This is not Blue's Clues. No, it is not. This is not the movie Clue, even though I love no. it. No.
0: First, I thought you were asking me to do a podcast about board games. I'm glad we talked first, because I, I would have, <laughs> you know, been confused.
1: We make up stories for each character in the game Clue every episode. So, Ooh. go for that. Well, that's on. what we're going to
0: do after these 10 episodes, and we're just going to add a B <laughs> to the end, and people are going to be so confused.
1: <laughs> okay. I'm for confusing people. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, if you have any comments or whatever, you can email us getacluepodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Twitter, the website twitter.com. We are at getacluepod. Yes, pod on the end. Getacluepod. And, you know, I mean, hey, if you just want to talk to me or Mike on our own, my name is Elby and I am at Ghoulieschool, School and Mike you are at
0: the Mike 31 come on over talk to us about Clue tell us what we did right what we did wrong try to be nice you know we're nice people we won't be mean to
1: <laughs> yes
0: again just thank you for listening
1: yeah and uh, the next episode we are going to cover 1960s television so that's mm-hmm. the other thing that Clue is known most for so basically TV western so that'll be fun hope you guys stick around
0: yep come along partner that was my, <laughs> that was my western voice
1: that's pretty good <laughs> Get a clue! Get a Clue is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com where you can find more great shows such as What Did We Just Watch and Vincent Price's Laugh. Each episode is researched and performed by L.B. Bargeron and The Mike. Visit tmdfps.blogspot.com for The Mike's Double Feature Picture Show. Special thanks to our illustrious producer Andrew Bargeron for designing our super rad logo. Visit jemetsgo.com for more of his fancy pants artwork. And last but not least, a big thank you to the brilliant Adriana Gober for writing and performing our amazing theme song. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe.